Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. This is the first podcast of 2021. We've been on break for almost two weeks, so it's great to be back with you. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. So, Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, we came, uh, we, we wandered happily through our 10 days or so of uh, blissful vacation until yesterday when the news came that Donald Trump had been taped on a phone call demanding or coaxing the Georgia Secretary of State to find him 12,000 votes so that he could win the Georgia election? No, no, no. Exactly 11,780, which is precisely one more vote than Joe Biden's margin of victory. Yes. 11,700. I I said 12,000 because I couldn't remember the actual number. The specificity here is important. It's very important since it it goes to intent. It goes to intent. Okay. um, So, uh, unfortunately... uh, we are obliged to talk about this and we are going to we are now obliged to talk about this in a way that annoys people who email us and say that we are too negative about the president whom we should be grateful to for uh many things um abe uh, i believe uh in a text to all of us you asked the question is this the worst thing that the president has ever said uh on t- on tape and um I I think it is. Yeah, I, I just think it is. I want the to worst say, thing ever. First, first off, I'm I'm so glad that you know, having turned the calendar year over, um, 2020 is immediately so far back in our rearview mirror. Everything is so much better and calmer now. <laughs> so it's great that we that we that we've got past yeah. that horrible year. Um. Uh, yeah, I can't think of anything worse. I mean, you know, there there's. There are sort of you know reported things that presidents have said um, that that could be worse, but um, you know I think I wrote in the text is this, is this the worst thing that a president has ever been caught saying? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I realized caught isn't even the right word uh, because he's just he's saying this to whomever will listen. It's just, just documented. Well, the luckiest people in the world right now. Uh, are the um, Republicans in the U.S. Senate because there is uh, today is the fourth of January. Uh, the inauguration is in sixteen days, uh, and they are not going to be put in the position because of the schedule of having to decide how to handle an impeachment, which. Uh, under other circumstances, not that this specific thing could have happened in any time, maybe except now. It could have happened maybe a month ago or six weeks ago. Um, but uh, he would be impeached under other circumstances, or uh, the House would convene, uh, write articles of impeachment, and impeach him by Wednesday. Uh, and uh, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in uh, the Senate would have to make some kind of an argument about why uh, 
they could table it or suspend it or not have a trial or something like that or why they would vote against him, uh, which unlike the Ukraine impeachment, which I think uh, Noah disagrees with this, but that we sort of all agreed, I think, uh, was, uh, I mean, it w- was a bridge too far that he did not do enough. Nothing happened that would require him to be removed from office. Um, this is as this is as close to an open and shut case for the removal of a president from office, demanding that a state official uh, alter the results of a of a vote count uh, in this sort of wheedling mafioso. I mean, we don't have to go into ancient history, but that was the defense of the Ukraine stuff either. Nothing happened. It was just an ask. It's just a request. Well. But it, it didn't happen, and so the and and there was no result. There was no result uh, in this case. Uh, there is no question that American law, as understood, was was violated, if not by Trump himself because of the weird status of the president, certainly by his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who, well, and is, who is, I believe, exposed is very much exposed to potential uh, criminal indictment in the state of Georgia. I was now. just going to say, there, there are state criminal laws in Georgia that apply to the president here, too. And in a couple of weeks when he's gone, uh, those will still apply to his behavior and actions right now. The shamelessness of it, quite frankly, is what shocks me. And, and I wouldn't feel too good for the Senate Republicans right now because they're all now engaged in a parallel project, which I think explains in part some of Trump's shamelessness on this call. They're engaged in a parallel project to, to you know, histrionically block the, the certification of this election. Again, it's all theater, but it's the kind of theater that we should take deeply, deeply seriously because it's bordering on tragedy to see people who are who are given the power to, to legislate in this country deeply undermining the institution of which they're a part. And I'm talking exactly about Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz right now. Right. Well, I mean, apparently 11 senators are going to join Josh or or, uh, 10 other senators. Some are going to join Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz in this idea that the results of the election should be contested. There, there will be a vote to contest the results of however, whatever matter of procedure there is that is being discussed will happen. Um, Somebody, uh, somebody likened the demand that Pence, that this preposterous thing that Pence himself declare Trump the president to Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway declaring that La La Land had won the Oscar instead of Moonlight and that it standing that because they opened the envelope and misread the result <laughs> and that because he they said that Moon, uh, La La Land had won instead of Moonlight, that La La Land wins instead of Moonlight. Um, uh, we should also uh, mention the uh, dumbest and most disgusting member of the Republican caucus in the House, at least now, uh, Louis Gohmert, whose lawsuit it was to say that Pence had the power to declare Trump the president, uh, calling for violence in the streets as a result of the uh, fact that the court went against him. In this case, Louis Gohmert should be expelled from the House for such a suggestion, in my view, as well as he should be expelled from the House because he does not have a functioning synapse in his brain and never has. He is a repellent, preposterous figure who should be extirpated from the public life of this nation. But I 
somehow have gotten off the point, which is uh, what where what where is this going? What is what is happening? What what you know? It's like every every day you think it can't get worse, it, get, it gets worse. Well, there is, go ahead, Noah. No, I mean it's a sad verdict to render, but there is a, a profound sickness in the Republican base. Yes. Thank you. Um, they respond to this kind of crazy. They demand that people reinforce their paranoia. They um, and there is a market for it, and you will always be outbid by um, people who are genuinely able to sort of marshal that sort of crazy and without any regard for consequence. Which is why Ted Cruz is really foolish to continue this act. Ted Cruz has now been outcruised by. Donald Trump in quick succession and Josh Hawley, because it's a really easy act to emulate. You simply outbid and outbid and outbid. And when your bids are, aren't, and when you can never deliver on it, you blame what other forces, universal forces arrayed against you, conspiracy theories, you know, uh, powerful people and uh, ubiquitous and unseen that are arrayed against your interests. And it's a really easy act to do. Uh, it's not hard if you have no concern, no, no sense of propriety and no concern for the uh, your integrity and the health and well-being, mental health and well-being of your constituents, which um, is clearly on display here. And so, I mean, the rewards for this sort of thing are seemingly pretty minimal. I mean, people will point to Donald Trump. Donald Trump won the presidency behind it. But yeah, he also lost it. Well, I don't know if I, it depends on how you calculate. These guys are calculating. There is no way that Ted Cruz, who was a Supreme Court clerk, or Josh Hawley, who was a Supreme Court clerk, believe a single goddamn word that is coming out of their mouths or out of their pens. This is all, as you say, performative, incredibly cynical, loathsomely cynical. Unprecedented but, allegations. But this is, is their... Is the claim that they're making. The Anybody can yeah. issue an allegation. Yeah. Uh, they don't believe it. They're doing it as a form of political positioning. Um, so, but they know, look, we haven't put ourselves in front of millions of voters in Missouri and Texas. They have, they won elections. We haven't, they know something about how to appeal to an electorate and what it means. And to say that, uh, I mean, you've said there's a sickness in the base of the Republican party. And if that's the case, then um, they're playing to it uh, is something we need to take instruction from not say, oh, I, I don't know, Ted Cruz has really, you know, uh, made a boner here, because I don't think he's made a boner here. And that's where I say, I don't know where this goes. I don't understand what I happens. Do. Where? I, I think he has. Where? Because okay. if he's attempting to usurp the president's base by adopting this cause for himself, the president can always come around and say, you didn't do it right, or you didn't do it my way. Or this failed because you weren't sufficiently committed to the cause. Okay, let me let me let me just throw this out to you, and then maybe Abe, you can respond to it. That it's not about taking over the the president's space. It is about establishing a record that when you go around in twenty twenty three running for president, you can say, "I was there. I was there." You know what? The media came after me, and John Budwards came after me, and said I was a cynical. But I was there with you. I was there to say they're trying to steal the election. These radical, subversive Democrats, and I took the heat for you. And I was there. Not I'm better than Trump. Not I know how to do it better than Trump. But that—that's why—that's why he's doing it. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's it's all about um, you know getting with um, the new reality, which is to um, it's become uh, in the minds of of these Republicans, and and as as you say, John, they may know something here about this because they're they are running for offices and and um, appealing to the publics. Um, it has become in their minds a political liability to accept reality for what it is. That that is what you cannot do. That is that if anyone who does that is um, everything from a cuck to a China spy, um, you know, to a, a, a liberal, right? Well, then maybe that means twenty twenty one needs to be the year that chickens come home to roost for all of these people, right? So, what does this mean for the Republicans? It means they might lose Georgia and lose the Senate for you know all these you know uh, people like Andrew Cuomo and all the COVID leaders. It means you know continuing deaths, people getting sick and tired of listening to their uh, absolute uh, uh, denial of the reality on the ground, and you know puffing themselves up as heroes when in fact they they could easily be seen as villains. It's people looking at teachers' unions and saying, "Wait a minute." You don't care about school kids. You care about protecting your own interests. I mean, there's a way in which I know everybody wants to see this new year as a kind of turning the page. We have a new administration. It's all going to be better. But there's a lot of there's a lot of karmic payment coming due in this year, I think. And, and I, a lot of it's going to come for Republicans. Listen, it is very important. This is an incredibly important point because politics does not work in a straight line. Now you Here's the thing. Maybe the bill will not come due. Maybe the karmic payment will not be made today on the left and on the right among Democrats and Republicans. But it will come due. I mean, I've said this on this podcast many times that Donald Trump's victory in 2016 was the karmic payment for the financial meltdown in 2008. People still haven't come to a reckoning of this because there was so much interest in saying it was about immigration or it was about race or it was about, you know, the 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 suffering white, you know, working class, all of which tie into the financial meltdown in some ways. But that uh, this gigantic disruptive thing had happened in 2008 and we kind of sailed along with politics as on a kind of entropic course – until the degradation hit, and and uh, and first Obama wins, and then the Republicans beat Obama, and then Obama wins re-election, and then the Republicans beat Obama in the Senate, and none of it really addresses this sense that the country had gone totally haywire in 2008. And if we are looking at this now, COVID, the bad response to COVID from Republicans in the White House and from Democratic governors like Andrew Cuomo, who somehow end up for a while looking like they are heroes, and from teachers' unions and unions in general, and uh, people who uh, make apologies for riots and all of that, if the reckoning does not take place now, if there isn't some kind of general populist revolt or good sense revolt, let's say, against all of this, it will come, and it will come in bizarre and complicated and highly confusing ways. But here's the difficulty with the reckoning. Um, it's not – we're not talking about, in the broader sense, a strictly partisan problem. Um, the sickness that uh, Noah identifies in the Republican base is no more sick than the, the sickness on the left. Um, it's a different 
it's a slightly different brand, only slightly different, by the way. I mean, it's it's similar in that it involves conspiracy thinking and the inability to accept reality. Um, and we're we're just seeing it highlighted now in this story and 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 everything that's happened and unfolded since the election. But um, for there to be um, a reckoning, um, who who who's going to um, sort of get the support that was lost by the the those who um, are sick when when sort of everyone is sick? Well, that's why I say you don't know how it falls out. But if I say to you, President Tulsi Gabbard, or I say, you know, I mean, I, I don't know how to look at it. Right. I mean, honestly, there's no President Nick Offerman, President Ron Swanson. I don't, you know, if Zelensky can get elected president of Ukraine, who knows who could get elected? Who knows what the political disruptions are going to be? I mean, uh, you know, we're in an unstable political period. This instability has been present since. I mean, remember, look at look at the instability that faces us. 2000, we had this tied election, tied Senate. Senate jumps back to Democratic control in 2001 when Jim Jeffords becomes an independent, then shifts back into Republican control in 2002. Republicans lose the House in 2006. Republicans lose the Senate in 2006 or 8. I can't even remember now. They get the House back. Obama wins the presidency. Bush loses. Obama rewins the president. Republicans win the win the Senate. Republicans then win the White House and the House and the Senate in twenty retain the House and Senate in twenty sixteen or win back the House in twenty sixteen. Then Democrats get the House back in twenty eighteen. Win the presidency again in twenty twenty. We are bouncing all over the place. The most liberal president in history in Obama. I don't know, I can't call Trump a conservative, but the most unconventionally populist conservative president in Trump, like we are not a stable, we are in a deeply unstable couple of decades here, and it's apparently intensifying, I think. Now, let me take a break and talk to you for a second about one, a podcast that I believe will help us through this period. It's our, our friend Dan Senor's post-corona. Uh, you can find it at, uh, you know, at the uh, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you need to find uh, podcasts. Um, post-corona is an effort to explore what the country will look like, what our economy will look like, and what the world will look like as we go through and finally get to the end of this period of in which we are being dominated by this uh, deadly virus. The latest post-corona podcast is with Neil Ferguson, uh, the historian, Stanford professor, Hoover Institution guy. Um, uh, it is a fascinating discussion in which he, one of the earliest people to warn about the coming pandemic uh, back in January of 2020, says that at the same time as he was convinced that the elites of the world were refusing to pay attention, um, that when they started paying attention, they went too far, that the lockdowns went too far, that the economic disruptions were too great. And he locates the parallel to this period, not in 1918 and with the great pandemic of 1918, but with a pandemic in 1957-58, which also featured a long-forgotten 
uh, discovery, uh, rapid discovery, triumphant discovery of a vaccine that was administered with very little fuss and with very great success throughout the United States in incredibly quick succession. So if you want to hear that story and you want to learn about how we are going to come through, please go to Apple, the iTunes Store, Stitcher, Google Play, and subscribe to Post Corona Dan Senor's podcast. It'll be one of the best things that you can do for your enlightenment and your entertainment because it's 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 really a lot of fun and a, a great conversation. Uh, so let's talk about what's going on here with the vaccine. So we have a vaccine, and um, and in uh, it just reminds me of a Woody Allen bit about how Woody Allen uh, gets kidnapped. Uh, he, uh, you know, a man says, uh, would, would he like to stop someone on the street and says, would he like to come to a place where there are fairies and elves and there's candy all the time? And he figures, why not? I am home from college. I might as well go do this. And he gets thrown into the car. He's kidnapped and they contact his parents and say, we've kidnapped your son. And he says, my parents whip into action. They rented out my room. <laughs> So Andrew Cuomo has rented out Woody Allen's room. Like this is, we have a vaccine and guess what? Nobody is getting it. 20% of people, there's, there's 80%, there 80% of the vaccines are sitting in some refrigerator at 92, you know, 92, 93 degrees below zero while we try to figure out how best and how most equitably to distribute the vaccine. And this is happening in all kinds of places and not in others. In Florida, people are just lining up to get the vaccine. Here, there's this just angels dancing on the head of a pin, social justice warrior, healthcare worker, privilege, whatever thing going on. Cuomo announcing massive penalties for anyone who gets a shot who doesn't deserve it. What on? Meanwhile, in Israel, a million people have been vaccinated in two weeks. And they will have they will likely vaccinate the entire country by the end of January. Okay. I finished my rant. I mean, the first and only positive thing I have to say about Bill de Blasio is <clears throat> I mean, here in his ongoing feud with uh Andrew Cuomo is he's you know, he always strikes the position that's opposite of the governor. But in this case, he's right. He's saying <clears throat> the state has not provided authorization to mass distribute these vaccines. They're authorized and explicit, explicitly and with criminal penalties associated with it, only allowing doctors in hospitals to, with hospital affiliation to administer this thing and to give it to uh, frontline healthcare workers. So at this stage, even up to and including possibly, we don't know, we don't have a, a evidence of this yet, but possibly yielding uh, the expiration of these vaccines. You have to use them in a certain period of time, otherwise they go bad on you. Um, and it's the the state, this state, and many other mostly blue states have decided that they're going. We're we're going to get to herd immunity only after and until it filters through this hierarchy of social strata that they've decided is of more value. Some sort of reparative social justice is is due to you know these people, and therefore the vaccine is their historical karmic reward, as opposed to actual good public policy, which would be to you know, do the, the Israeli vaccinate the pizza guy scenario where they, you know, they have as much as they can and they give it to the hospital worker and then they have a couple of jabs left and they pull somebody off the street and say, do you want the vaccine? That's how you do it. Because, it, how you do it. because otherwise you, you'll, you have to dump it. 
I mean, because the, the, the vaccine expires. And if you're forbidden under penalty of fine from giving it to the wrong person, why would you do it? Okay, so there was this clinic in Brooklyn, right? This, this, we all heard this story. Oh, it was so terrible when we first heard it. This clinic in Brooklyn somehow gets its hands on the vaccine and starts vaccinating um, uh, Orthodox Jews, right? It's vaccinating Orthodox. Where did they get it? How did this happen? Why wasn't there controls? What? This is all so horrible, right? The, then they say, we're stopping, we're stopping. We didn't mean to. It's terrible. Except it turns out, what did they do? They vaccinated the elderly. They vaccinated Rabbi Herschel Schachter of Yeshiva, right? Um, uh, a famous Talmudic authority who's like 80 years old. That's terrible. Oh, how awful. So they get the vaccine and they start shooting up people with the vaccine. And what happens? The world comes down on their heads. What the hell is going on here? You know, this is insane. The minute the vaccine is in the hands of some author- some player, it should be injected into somebody's arm, anybody's arm. You know, or we should make a rule that from January 5th at midnight until January 12th at midnight, everybody over the age of 80 is to be vaccinated. And anyone walks in with a driver's license that says that they're over 80, they will immediately get the vaccine. And then the next week till 75 and then till 70 and then 65. And then by the end of March, everybody over the age of 25 would be vaccinated. And not take weekends off for the people who right. are ready. Not, Oh, yeah. Oh, that was the <laughs> that other, was the other one. That was the one that got me. Renting yeah. out my room is right. So the Fairfax, Fairfax County, right, outside Washington, one of the wealthiest, maybe the second or third wealthiest county in America. They were off from New Year's Day. They were off from New Year's Eve until today. Five days in the middle of a pandemic. Because, you know, I mean, what? They should work on the weekend? You know, Have a- we gone insane? Andrew Cuomo is walking around taking, luxury, taking victory laps, publishing a book about how great he was. He's not responsible for Fairfax County. But we're now having these Talmudic debates. Should we let people, should we make sure that everybody gets both shots or only to get the first shot so that everyone can get as much as they possibly can? How about just getting people the goddamn shot? And there's, you know, there's also this other consideration here. Every policy decision has trade-offs, every, everyone. And so in, in the decision to um, vaccinate healthcare workers first, which I think is fair and just and generally a good decision... Um, there is, though, the, the the trade-off reality that healthcare workers are also the people most likely to already have antibodies because um, they've been exposed. So the longer that we go on um, in this process with with um, not getting the vaccine out to the general population, the 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 greater the risk is that all those other people out there who have who who are less likely to have antibodies won't will get infected and pass it on and so on and there's, yeah there's I, i'm not sympathetic to that though because you, you you don't know what kind of antibodies you have like some some 20 million people in this country have had this disease so they might have some level of antibody but you don't know how much so they all have to get the shot too uh, I, I, the worker thing is all constituents make constituency servants services it's uh radiologists are getting this you know this shot who have minimal exposure to patients with this sort of thing, whereas pediatrics officials who are not associated with a hospital don't and are, are seeing people who are at risk all the time. Well, the next line is who? Yeah. Teachers. Why? Because of political clout. 
Well, and and then you can do this. I mean, so in Florida, you know, Florida has always been, and Governor Ron DeSantis in particular has been this this media scapegoat throughout this pandemic, and always compared and contrasted negatively to to Cuomo. They've already started a pilot project which works with churches and community centers, and uh, with, with gives them doses of the vaccine and tries to get the general population uh, vaccinated. I mean, you can do this. There are ways, this is, again, we go back to this federalism thing, but this is how federalism is supposed to work. Give leadership to the local officials who understand their populations and, and are supposed to understand how to motivate people to get vaccinated and try different outreach efforts. Don't just narrowly funnel it to a small group of individuals like they've done in New York. Look, the other thing is all things being equal. You could make a rule, all things being equal, healthcare workers, get vaccinated first. But that doesn't mean that healthcare workers get vaccinated and you keep everybody else from getting it until they're all vaccinated. You open the window. The window is open. They either come to the window or they don't come to the window. And while they have they have first dibs at the window, right. you can have two lines. You can have a priority, like in the airport, you can have a priority line and then the other line and two people can stand on the set, particularly now that lines can be virtual. Go on a website, click on something, get an appointment. You get an appointment for 3.30 in the morning. There should be field hospitals in Central Park. There should be field hospitals everywhere where this can happen at all hours of the day or night. <clears throat> but then That's- you have this situation where this Kaiser Family Foundation survey found that nearly a third of these frontline hospital workers aren't going to take the thing. That's my point about the all things being equal thing. And, and we've talked window, about this in the they, podcast. Right, yeah. We've talked about this in the podcast before. Christine has in particular, this this NPR quotes this um, chief surgical clinical officer at Chicago's Loretta Hospital who said, I've heard Tuskegee more times than I can count in the past month. And you know, it's a valid concern. It's a valid concern. Right, but here's my point. So, Not a valid concern. So, no, so open the window. You can't make adults do something, although there is a piece of legislation before the New York State Assembly that says that uh, people who refuse to take the vaccine should be imprisoned. I don't know if everybody saw this proposed piece of legislation, which is, you know, interesting. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's crazy, but I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. We spent the first 20 minutes of this podcast talking about the irreparable paranoia, the, the deleterious psychological um, uh, impact mm-hmm. of these kind of consp- reinforcing these conspiracy theories in people. That's reinforcing a conspiracy theory in people to the detriment of public health. And why? Because we have to be we have to be deferential to these ideas in part because they represent some sort of reparative racial policy. Hey, there is, there is a candidate for Senate in Georgia who has spoken with some delicacy about the question of whether or not you know, AIDS and crack were, were in, you know, were brought to the inner city by the CIA. That guy, Raphael Warnock, could end up in the Senate on Wednesday. So let, you know, that that's a real thing. And, you know, it, that kind of view, which should have been invalidating, of course, is probably one of the reasons that he is the Senate candidate from Georgia. Not that he's not. That, like a form of purity testing, uh, how far are you willing to go to adopt your, uh, you know, nationalist victimization agenda is you go to the crack was created by the CIA to control, you know, to control uh, popul- bad, you know, uh, underserved populations or whatever. It is very depressing. 
Abe, you said, by the way, that um, you are you you said on Facebook that you are now going to block anybody <laughs> who starts um, uh, promulgating a conspiracy theory in your among your uh, Facebook friends. Yeah, I can't take it. It's terrible. It's it's just it's bad for me. It's bad for the country. It's a, it's a horrible reminder of of how off the rails everything is. And the second I I said it, by the way, on Facebook, I got um, earnest accusations that um, my um, wishing to do so was in fact an expression of some sort of conspiracy <laughs> that I, that I was. <laughs> oh my God. Um, I mean, the- and, and it's, again, it's left and right, you know, it's, you know, yeah. well, every, every, I asked you, and I asked you this, which is, and I guess this is really unknowable, but is there something about social media? The fact that we now understand, we are now privy in a way that we never were in the course of our lives or the world has never been in the course of their lives to the inner thoughts of people, many of whom we don't really know, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, and Facebook, where people now express, uh, unburden themselves of their views. Um, are they worse? Are people worse? Are people more conspiracy-minded than they used to be? Or are we just getting a look inside the sausage factory of the human brain? And as Bismarck said, you never want to go to a sausage factory because you don't want to see what goes into the sausage. I, it, it, go ahead, Abe. Go ahead. Well, I just think, I, I think it's not it, – it, it I think it's worse now, and I think it's not just um, social media. I think it's um, internet – Technology generally has created a universe um, that didn't exist before. Where, um, if you are some sort of conspiracy theorist, um, you can throw up all your um, supposed research and your documentation and your videos and your this and your that, and you create um, uh, these sort of you know archives and libraries of of garbage that other people can then. Um, go and investigate and then reach out to other, and you you create these networks that didn't happen before you know before there were there was there were always you know fringy conspiracy theorists but now the the internet has enabled them to be a genuine force in the culture it, the infrastructure of how these uh, sites and networks are established, how they're actually created, it re- actually rewards a conspiratorial habit of mind. It doesn't have to be about politics. It can be about anything. It can be theory about a celebrity someone likes or a theory yeah. about, you know, someone who lives in your neighborhood. If you've been on next door, you'll see that it can get very local very quickly. So I think that's absolutely right, Abe. And I think for the, the concern for any of us who worry about its effects on democracy and institutions are those habits of mind. And we are now seeing, we saw it with Trump, but we're seeing it all across the political spectrum. Um, You see it in AOC, you see it in how Ted Cruz is behaving this week. Politicians who actually embrace that habit of mind and are rewarded for it by constituents who only know of their political culture and political life through those networks. Okay, well, I just want to point out, there there is a, 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 a short story I love by John Cheever, called The Chaste Clarissa. This was published, I think, in 1951 in The New Yorker. And in the story, a man is on the ferry to Martha's Vineyard. And uh, he gets off the ferry. To, he's going to visit his family on the weekend. And there is a beautiful woman on the dock waiting for her husband, a stunningly beautiful woman. He gets off the dock. They start talking. He starts yelling at her. He, guy can't hear what he's saying. She bursts into tears. And he conceives of this great passion for her, the, our narrator. 
And he, over the course of the summer, starts seeing them at parties together where he sees this husband always getting angry at her and storming away and that she sort of cries. And at some point, he gets her into the kitchen at a party and says to her, it's so terrible how your husband behaves. And she's like, I don't know why he's so mean to me. He's so mean to me. And the guy says, what's the story? And she starts talking, and it turns out that she is a delusional idiot. She starts talking about how aliens planted things in her garden. And I I can't remember what the, but it's sort of seven or eight things that are both alternately stupid, dumbfounding, and crazy. And as she's talking, he starts saying, that's really interesting. I, I never thought of it that way. You know, you are very interesting. That is a very intelligent observation. And the last line of the story is, and that was all it took. Because all he wanted to do was get into bed with her. All he had to do was say to her most ridiculous thoughts so that you now understood why her husband was so driven so crazy by her. All he had to say was, oh, you're really interesting. That Those thoughts are really, really special. So that story published 70 years ago, that suggests to me that maybe this is a cast of mind that is eternal and that our, the harnessing of it as a political force and as a general social force is what's new. Um, and maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's a distinction without a difference that what's happened here is the surfacing of stuff that was buried. In but the scale of it is – I think the scale is, is more bad. The scale of it, yeah. Even that's not all that new, yeah. though. Every, virtually every populist political philosophy is predicated on a conspiracy theory that absolves you yeah. or your lot in life. Yeah. You're not responsible for your condition. Right. Some other phenomena is. It's, uh, it's depressing. But you know what's not depressing? It's Mac Weldon, the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high-quality fabrics. Mac Weldon offers a one-stop shop for men's basics, socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts. Whatever you need, Mac Weldon has you covered. Unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up your top drawer, all of Mac Weldon's basics have a consistent fit you can count on. From socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, Mac Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit. And you're not just going to look great in Mac Weldon. Their underwear, socks, shirts perform well, too, from working out, going out, going to work, or on a date. Mac Weldon is for everyday life. Its fabric technology is amazing. It offers a wide range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. Mac Weldon has created a totally free loyalty program. Level 1 gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach Level 2 by spending 200 bucks, Mac Weldon gives you 20% off every order for the next year. And Mac Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep them and they'll still refund you. No questions asked. That's MacWeldon.com, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Uh, okay, guys. So uh, with the new year upon us, we have, uh, we're still discussing everything uh, from the old year. We got COVID. We got conspiracies. We got Trump. Uh Oh, by the way, uh, as we were uh, podcasting, Trump has now tweeted Tom Cotton, our friend Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, uh, who came out and said uh, uh, he will not object to the electoral accounting in the Senate on Wednesday, uh, that it would be a violation of the Constitution to do so. Um, 
has uh, been the is now the recipient of a Donald Trump tweet. How can you certify an election when the numbers are being certified or verifiably wrong? You will see the real numbers tonight during my speech, but especially on January 6th, Senator Tom Cotton, Republicans have pluses and minuses. But one thing is sure, they never forget. So this is the shot across the bow at Tom Cotton, who has been a reliable Trump person for the most part during the during the Trump presidency and this is where we get to an interesting thing about trump that i think is worth noting uh it is not enough to support trump's demand for fealty is most important to him when he is at his worst not at his best trump demands that people support his craziest and most offensive and most lunatic behavior because that is where he knows that what they are doing is expressing loyalty to him no matter what. If he deserves fealty, if he deserves support, if he does things that deserve support, that's easy. That's an easy thing. You can support him for the Abraham Accords. You can support him for the tax cuts. You can support him for the judges. All that is easy. That is that is within the president's ambit. That is within the powers of the presidency. That is conservative mainstream thinking. That is creative thinking. That's easy. It's when he says a certified election certified by a Republican secretary of state with 30 lawsuits that have been, you know, that have been thrown out and preposterous ideas about people shredding ballots that didn't happen and all of that. That's where you need to support him. That's where you need to say that he's right because he is arguing something that is demonstrably untrue. Only then are you truly loyal. That's my theory. Well, I mean, look at his personal life. That's what he's demanded of every wife he's ever had. Like, you have to be loyal to me even when I have all these mistresses or even when I'm blatantly, you know, disregarding our marriage vows. He treats the American people and he treats his political allies the same way. Like, you have to embrace me at my worst, and you have to do it publicly. Like, you've got to stand right there beside me when I'm doing something that we all know is wrong. Right. I mean, he's attacking Tom Cotton not to attack Tom Cotton, but as a message to other. To right. other. So Tom Cotton's now, didn't we, he's attacked Tom Cotton. That's now do- done. This was the, don't you do anything I won't like. Tom Cotton will win by 30 points every time he runs for, for Senate in Arkansas. He's not at risk. But this is also what awaits Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and uh, Marsha Blackburn and how many other Republicans are supporting this lunatic uh, bid to, you know, just display fealty and, you know, be dead enders in support of a lost cause. This is he's going to out crazy you at a certain point. It doesn't matter what you do today. Because it's not about today. It's not about policy. It's about fealty to the man. And if the man commands fealty, you can't, you can't, you can't wrest that control from him by, by, by being more like him, by endorsing what he's doing. You're only, you're only solidifying and cementing that sort of fealty in his most diehard supporters. I mean, it's interesting because it's hard. Actually, it's legitimately hard at this moment to know what he will demand that will be impossible for them to support or what what he will demand that's worse than a lot of this than what we've seen so far but i guess you know that just suggests the poverty of my imagination that i can't think of what what that that might be um can we also talk about the uh the um karmic fact 
that uh, Trump is ending his presidency, uh, having said something insanely impolitic on tape, uh, following up on the um, Access Hollywood tape that nearly derailed his presidency in in uh, his presidential bid in October 2016. Like, shouldn't he have learned that when he talks on the phone or he's talking to people, maybe there's someone's taping him? Well, here's this is why this is actually quite interesting. Um, that's actually part of Donald Trump's defense, particularly in when it comes to the actual criminal statutes that he might have violated here. The likelihood that a prosecutor would bring these charges is the charges being what they are. There could be an indictment handed down, but the prosecute that they are prosecutable is in doubt because you'd have to demonstrate intent. Donald Trump would have to be demonstrating intent to violate the law here, knowingly violate the law. And because he's on this call with so many advisors, including his attorneys, the notion here that he would be knowingly violating, requesting or suborning this kind of violation of the law with these people on, on the call suggests that his intent was not that, or at least that there's some reasonable doubt that his intent was not that. That's an interesting point, although the very fact, as you said, that he said all he wants is the 11,000, the one more vote than he needs is itself, if he had no intent to, you know... No, his intent is clearly to overturn the election come hell or high water. He doesn't care how he gets there. The intent to violate the law in the process of getting there is a little murkier if, if you have to establish beyond a reasonable doubt... A criminal charge. He's, but he's so he, part of, I think, the reason that the media in particular has been so fascinated with him um, it, to an unhealthy degree throughout his presidency is that he's one of these people, it's kind of rare, who doesn't seem to have a backstage area, right? Like he is who he is all the time and ever and always. And so when he's asked to justify himself, or as in the case of lots of politicians who prove themselves hypocrites, to say, well, hey, what you're doing backstage isn't what you've been saying on stage, there's no curtain there for Donald Trump, right? It's all Donald Trump. And so I, he actually does have a problem doing that. That's why he sort of shrugged about the Access Hollywood tapes and said, ah, it's just locker room banter. He talks about, he talks like that all the time. I mean, it's a weird, psychologically, it's kind of interesting. It's a very, um, very modern personality type, actually, that is always on. He, he's always who he is. And it, you could call that, and I think a lot of his supporters call that authenticity, but it's not authenticity. It's something really weird. <laughs> Well, look, he says on the call, like a schmuck, I endorse Brian Kemp. Well, like a schmuck, he opened his mouth and has, you know, covered himself in disgrace. Now, maybe he doesn't care about the disgrace because he's fighting for all his people will support him and all of this. But, um, you know, history, uh, history is not going to record it that way uh, because there's no getting around this tape. It's there. And uh, if you listen to it with 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 um, uh, ears as objective as you can have it, if it is twenty four seventy three, and some historian loads it up and listens to it, it's going to be inarguable what he's saying and what he's doing. And hopefully, America will be around. Who that- leaked it? Who, who huh? do we know who gave Rather the tape to the? Rather 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 yeah, okay. He, he definitely sounded very aware of his own message. Raffensperger taped it because yeah. he didn't tape Lindsey Graham asking him to do the same. <laughs> and so he said, Lindsey Graham said, and Lindsey Graham said, I didn't say it, obviously lying. And so Raffensperger then decided he needed a record and he wasn't going to let this sit around. Well, look, Tom Cotton's move here is really interesting. He's obviously got his eyes on the White House. Half a dozen of these people 
signing or signing onto this do too. They seem to believe that this will be a pivot point or a wedge issue in pursuit of the Republican nomination. And Tom Cotton's bet is that Donald Trump will not be the center of Republican gravity in three years. I, I don't think Tom Cotton is thinking about the White House for 2024, but he is a he's very young and he has a long he has a long life in politics. And Ted Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are betting that the Trumpian are betting that Trumpism is the future, the immediate future, and maybe the future, you know, in the next 10 years. Um, But Tom Cotton, I think, is playing a much longer game. He's also much safer, by the way. Remember, Ted Cruz is up in 2024 and almost lost the Senate in 2018 to Beto O'Rourke, and the state is getting uh, purpler uh, as as the weeks pass. So and um, and so uh, having almost lost in 2018, uh, he may be in a better position to run for president than he is to run for Senate. Now, let me talk to you about the final sponsor today, the Bonson Group. Bonson Group provides financial and investment advice to its clients in a field where the vast majority of that advice is awful. Provided by financial advisors who are lazy, disengaged and uninterested in the real work that is required of those who want to properly steward their clients' assets. We're talking about people who work 25 hours a week. They don't know anything about how markets work. They don't know anything about the intersection of public policy with investing. They don't know anything about the relevance of monetary policy and the behavior of the Fed and how they affect modern finance. If you want to talk to most investment advisors about these key matters, you might as well be talking to a teenage kid at a Starbucks. In summary, The work ethic and intellectual capacity of so many financial professionals leaves a lot to be desired, but that is not the case for the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management. Every single day at the Bonson Group is an intellectual journey. Client communications are a way of life, and every bit of their perspective on the economy and capital markets for their own fresh resource and opinion. And every client is given his or her own bespoke family office experience. Read the Bonson Group's weekly investment commentary at DividendCafe.com. Read its market updates at TheDCToday.com and check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. That's the Bonson Group, where an actual economic worldview sits on the foundation of the best investment advice in the industry. DividendCafe.com, TheDCToday.com, the Bonson Group for your wealth management needs. Um, so, uh, tomorrow night, uh, we will have a vote in Georgia. Um, I've talked to a couple of, you know, behind the scenes professionals, uh, in this matter. Uh, there are uh, various scenarios, right? One scenario is that the Republicans eke it out and both seats go to Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. The, uh, Kelly Loeffler is still a sitting Senator. David Perdue has actually had to give up his seat yesterday in a, uh, and, uh, and so there, that, that seat is open. So if he wins, he will be sworn in as a new Senator because he filled in somebody else's seat. Um, or no, he, whatever he lost his, he lost his race or the, the race was, uh, was on full. Okay. Uh, or the Democrats will win. And the question there is whether Trump's behavior over the last couple of months and various other things have led to this pass. Um, and then there is the possibility that one seat could go Democrat and one seat could go Republican, which seems 
absurd to me, but I'm told is not entirely beyond the bounds of probability that, um, after all, David Perdue, uh, got almost 50% running against two people. And so he's already gotten a lot of votes and, and the turnout may not be, there's been a lot of early voting and, uh, but yeah, who knows? So that's, that's the general formula. Anybody have any thoughts as to whether or not you could actually see these seats splitting somehow? Well, John Ossoff already lost. I mean, that's the theory there. I mean, he's been defeated. He was defeated in the general election. So, why wouldn't he be defeated again? He'd have to earn a lot more votes than he earned on election day. And remember that he trailed Joe Biden by some 88,000 votes in that state. Okay. Well, I, the thought is that um, that uh, Democrats are engaged and hyper-engaged, and they really figured out how to turn people out. And there is a very lot for a special election, the early voting and, and uh, uh, mail-in voting uh, has been very heavy. Um, and that if if we follow the pattern of Democrats voting early and Republicans only voting on election day, um, then uh, they may be in a position to squeak through. That's that's the theory. There's another theory that, that Eric Erickson, uh, who's from Georgia, conservative commentator in Georgia, says that, you know, maybe a lot of Republicans did vote early uh, because there's no one yelling at them not to vote early like there was with Trump in uh you know uh in the in the months before the the election and if that's the case then it's a real it's it's really an x factor because um because if republicans did vote early the signs are with some of these ways they can figure out who people are and how they vote um that if they did vote early then then it's it's favorable news for democrats uh because they're not going to have the kind of turnout they need to overturn what appears to be uh Democratic advantage of around 350,000 votes or something like that. That's what I hear. I don't know what I'm talking about. That's the curse of listening to this pod. Some things we know. I'm just parroting what I hear from other people. Well, we, we do know one thing, which is that if Raphael Warnock wins a seat in the Senate, we can stop listening to everybody rail against QAnon conspiracists on the right because he's he is just what a what a really uh shocking uh, uh legislator he will be given his past history and i mean forget let's set aside the domestic issue of him running over his white ex-wife's foot and i mean the guy's life is a mess but his his ideological and particularly his anti-semitic and kind of nation of islam like uh philosophy of life has never hasn't been thoroughly poured over in the way that you would think and in part again i blame trump for this like this this race would actually be an interesting um, uh, way for conservatives and liberals to argue about what it means to be a conservative and a liberal. Like these, these candidates all are kind of proxies for certain factions among the left and the right. But it's, you know, Trump sucked all that out of the room. Um, but Warnock is disturbing, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> so hopelessly optimistic, Chris, Christine, the notion here that we would, uh, that there would be some sort of uh, parallel established by the media Yes, between the QAnon conspiracy theories and the the very valid you know concerns <laughs> that are expressed. Yeah, no, no. Instead, <laughs> instead, there was a there was a exactly. really really shameful story in the New York Times on Sunday about Warnock and his you know starting his preaching at the age of eleven and uh, you know how he yes there are some questions it's abusive summer his, camp <laughs> yeah some questions about uh, you know complex domestic arrangements with his wife. 
Um, the the fact that he drove over her foot with his car somehow is not mentioned specifically. Um, but, you know, you can always now count on the New York Times to provide the Parson Weems coverage of of, of any uh, Democrat of color um, that uh, that they believe was denied. You know, it's like those uh, those uh, those obituaries that, that they now run of yeah. people who didn't get an obituary before, uh, all of whom all of whom are presented without blemish. And so well, and, and our friends at the Free Beacon deserve a shout out. They've been doing really excellent coverage of Warnock um, and uh, particularly the other scandal in his past, which is overseeing this this camp for boys where, you know, horrious, uh, horrible allegations of abuse uh, were made. And and he's, again, never been made to answer for these as a candidate. Um, he, he's He's got a, his past is, troubled and he wouldn't in any other kind of political environment it would not go as unnoticed as it has been by the mainstream media absolutely so with that we will bid you adieu until tomorrow when we will have uh, my old friend uh, Dan Casson to discuss uh, how the future was created 50 years ago this year by the year 1971 so with that for Noah, Abe and Christine I'm John Podhortz keep the candle burning